1: In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for
0: yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
2: About two in the morning, August twenty-first, twenty 2013, hundreds in the suburbs of Damascus were awakened by the panic of their last breath stuck in their throats. They were experiencing the horror of a sarin gas attack. No one has been held responsible, but we've been gathering evidence, and much of what we found has not been
3: public before. Nobody knew what was going on. People were just praying for God to have mercy on them.
4: This is a real human brain.
3: One of the earliest TED
5: Talks posted was literally about what was going on inside the head of neurobiologist Jill Bolt Taylor.
4: Then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke.
5: (laughs) Taylor's talk went viral. We need mathematicians. And soon internet users couldn't get enough of TED Talks.
4: Every child.
5: A million views turned into a billion. What? And now it is an internet phenomenon.
6: (gasps) I've been to the future.
7: Want to join me?
1: your
7: Holland College Golden Knights Every once in a while we come across someone with an amazing ability a power so unusual so unexpected and so fascinating it becomes a story that's why we're telling you tonight about a man named Bob Petrella who has used his extraordinary memory to create a
8: fantasy world
1: At forward, a six-foot-nine sophomore from Little Rock, Arkansas.
8: This is really unusual. I have never heard of anything like this before. Never.
2: I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker.
5: I'm Lara Logan.
2: I'm Charlie Rose. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. If you have young children watching right now, usually that's a good thing. But this story is not for them. The pictures you're about to see are agonizing. This will be hard to watch, but it should be seen. Generally, mankind does not outlaw weapons. Anything a military can think of is in the arsenals of the world. But there are a few exceptions, and one of them is for a weapon so hideous that virtually every country has banned not only its use, but the mere possession of it. The weapon is sarin, it's nerve gas. And in 2013, it was unleashed on Syrian civilians in what the UN Secretary General calls a crime against humanity. A year and a half later, no one has been held responsible. For several months, we've been gathering evidence. Much of what you're about to see has not been public before. None of what we found will be omitted here. About two in the morning, August 21st, 2013, hundreds in the suburbs of Damascus were awakened by the panic of their last breath stuck in their throats. Neighbors carried neighbors to makeshift clinics. Victims were stripped and washed. Everything was tried, but nothing could be done. There was no forcing life into lungs that could not accept it. Their nerves, electrified by sarin, fired nonstop. Muscles
3: seized until death released them. Nobody knew what was going on. People were just... Praying for God, to have mercy on them. Uh, Sir, I've seen things you won't even dream about in your worst nightmares. I'm on a tour inside the streets of Moadamia. Qasim Eid has recorded his nightmares
2: in Moadamia. Four years ago, the suburb rebelled against the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad. Eid has shown the world the shelling, and years of hunger imposed by an army blockade. That was a close one.
3: He was there in August when strange rockets pummeled the night. When they crashed, they didn't make the same old-fashioned bombing sound, but it was, in a way, silent. The rockets hit the ground, but it didn't sound to you like they were exploding? Yes. They were, didn't sound like it was. Uh, they were exploding. Uh, With the closest rocket, I hit almost 100 meters away from the place that I was staying in. 300 feet or so. Yes. And within seconds, it just took seconds before I lost my ability to breathe. I felt like my chest was set on fire. Uh, My eyes were burning like hell. I wasn't able even to scream or to do anything. So I started to beat my chest really hard. Beat your chest? Yes, trying to take um, take a breath, just to be able to take a single breath. It was so painful. It felt like somebody was tearing up my chest with a knife made of fire. Over the years, artillery had
2: sheared the tops off the neighborhoods, so women and children slept in basements. Sarin is heavier than air. It slipped past doors, and crept down stairwells. Death was arbitrary. It seemed that for every corpse, there was a witness who just missed a lethal dose. A neighbor appeared at Kasameed's door.
3: And she had two of her kids uh, suffocating and vomiting this weird white stuff out of their mouths. She was begging us uh, to help her, to get her children to the field hospital. This field hospital is just a basement in a building with almost zero medical equipment. It's not a real hospital. It's not a real hospital. It felt like judgment day for me.
2: Saren has no color, no odor, often the dead drop never knowing what happened. But their eyes bear witness. The seizures draw the pupils tight, and the world goes dark, which might be a blessing this father had willed his daughters through months of hunger now he's shouting do you know what they said before going to sleep I gave her food she said dad it's not my turn to eat it's my sister's he goes on what should we do good people what are we to do look at that face look at that face
3: You were being exterminated. I don't know. I cannot imagine how anybody can do this to people, to other people. Dying this way is one of the most ugliest ways of death uh, people ever knew through history.
2: The history of Sarin begins in the 1930s. It was a Nazi weapons program. The name is an acronym of the scientists' last names. In 1997, sarin and other chemical weapons were outlawed and the world set up the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Scott Carnes is a chemist and lead inspector for that organization.
6: A person who is exposed to sarin, what do they experience? A number of physical uh, symptoms and uh, some psychological effects. You you get this overwhelming sense of doom and hopelessness and fear. And what causes death? Typically, it's the paralysis of the respiratory system eventually. Your muscles don't work. You lose the oxygen to your brain, it just puts you into overload. It's a very horrible uh, way to die.
2: As fate would have it, Scott Carnes would see evidence of that for himself. He was in Damascus with a team the day of the assault. They'd arrived days before to investigate other alleged chemical attacks.
6: I'd just gotten up uh, and what I thought I'd heard was another regular bombardment of conventional weapons to the east of Damascus. He had
2: heard the rockets en route to the largest sarin massacre of civilians since Saddam Hussein in Iraq in
1: 1988.
2: Carnes demanded access. They raced in, in U.N. trucks, and the shooting started.
6: What happened? The gunman was firing on the first two vehicles. So the vehicles were hit? Oh, the vehicles were hit. The first vehicle was um, disabled. Did you find out who was shooting at you? No. Why do you think they were shooting at you? They were shooting at us just to tell us, send us a message. If they wanted to kill us, they would have killed us. At no point was there any interest in turning around and going back to the hotel. Finding and documenting the truth
2: was worth risking your life for. Yes.
4: Thank you. Thank you for coming, okay? Thank you. Thank you
6: How'd you go about your work? Very quickly, uh, we didn't have a lot of time. We had places where we could set up our interview stations, we could take samples, biomedical samples from people, blood, urine, hair.
2: They also collected cell phone videos and swabbed samples from mangled rockets. Days later, in a community called Zamalka, they discovered the rockets were much larger and had delivered even more gas. Never before had investigators arrived at a chemical crime scene so soon.
6: Well over 90% of the samples that we took tested positive for sarin. What witness sticks in your mind as the person you cannot forget? There are several a child of seven or eight who lost most of his family. A woman of uh, in her early 30s who lost her entire family, her husband and all her kids. A man, out of his 20 family members, he was the only one left alive. So interviewing these people was very difficult.
2: Our work to find witnesses took us out into the desert. The refugees we found were on the run from the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Millions of Syrians have fled the country into desolate refugee camps like this one. And over a period of weeks, we have been able to find more survivors of the nerve gas attack. These people asked us not to show you their faces or tell you their names because they have family back in Syria and they are quite certain the dictatorship would hunt them down. Even at that, they told us, some risks have to be taken to tell this story. This man told us Assad gassed people, he killed people, he's killing women. What he did could not be done by any other human being. He killed everything, even the trees. He and his son, who was a nurse, told us that they were among those who had given first aid. How many patients did you treat that day? He told us people were being brought in on ambulances, motorcycles, pickup trucks, a tractor and a semi. There were people rushing in with their kids, crying out, help him, help him, he's about to die. I didn't have a chance to count. This woman was three months pregnant with her son when the gas entered her lungs. She came to in an aid station. Her brother was carried in next.
3: He was calling
2: my name before he died, she said. Take care of your mother, he told me. How did you survive? I lived by God's will, but I wished I had died. Her son was born six months later. She believes he has epilepsy. He loses consciousness, he starts shaking, his mouth foams, the same symptoms I had. How often does he have these seizures? She told us approximately three a day. The rockets were types used by the Syrian army and they were launched from land held by the dictatorship. U.S. intelligence believes the Syrian army used sarin in frustration after years of shelling and hunger failed to break the rebels. With the threat of airstrikes, President Obama forced Assad to give up his chemical arsenal. But if Assad was the trigger man, There is one thing odd about the timing. Why would anyone launch the largest chemical weapons attack in decades while chemical weapons inspectors are in town?
6: I ask myself that a lot. I don't know. We don't know why. No. I don't think we'll ever truly know. We
2: also don't know precisely how many died. But have a look around the makeshift morgues. So many were lost all at once that the living had to make room for the dead. U.S. intelligence estimates 1,429 civilians were killed. 426 of them, children. Of course, Syria is dying too. Prosecution of this atrocity will have to wait for whatever civilization emerges from the ruin. But the dead will be waiting, because a crime buried without justice is never laid to rest.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play
2: it at play.it. For a look at 60 Minutes' decision to broadcast some of the most disturbing footage in its history, go to 60MinutesOvertime.com. Sponsored by Lyrica.
5: It has become a place where big ideas find a global audience. It is known simply as TED, and TED Talks, a little presentation that anyone can watch online for free. There are TED Talks on almost every subject you can imagine. Building your own nuclear reactor, stopping cyberbullies, exploring Antarctica, a better way to tie your shoes, But what sets TED Talks apart is that the big ideas are wrapped up in personal stories, and they are mostly from people you've never heard of before. And it is those stories that have captured the imaginations of tens of millions of viewers around the world. Giving a TED Talk can be life-changing, even if some speakers don't always realize what they're getting into.
9: I'd never heard of Ted, and I didn't know what a Ted talk was.
5: <laughs> but Brian Stevenson was exactly the sort of person the people at Ted wanted. He was an attorney who'd spent years trying to reform the criminal justice system. They thought he'd have a lot to say. He said yes. Then he remembered a serious conflict on his
9: calendar. It was scheduled two weeks before I had an argument at the U.S. Supreme Court, and I told one of my Young staffer, somebody named Ted, wanted me to come and do a <laughs> TED Talk, and I told him no, and my staffer went crazy. So said, what are you talking about? You have to do a TED and Talk. And what did they say, though, to convince you? This is really a big deal. It's an incredible platform. You should absolutely do it. Everybody watches TED Talks. Being here at TED and, and seeing the stimulation here... In March of 2012, Brian
5: Stevenson took the stage at the annual TED conference in Long Beach, TED California... He
9: was one of more than 60 speakers that week. We have a system of justice in this country that treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes.
5: He made the case for changing the criminal justice system with the same mixture of passion and logic that he uses to persuade judges and juries. He introduced his equal justice initiative in a disarmingly personal way.
9: I had the great privilege when I was a young lawyer of meeting Rosa Parks and Ms. Parks turned to me and she said, now Brian, tell me what the Equal Justice Initiative is. Tell me what you're trying to do. I began giving her my rap. I said, well, we're trying to challenge uh, injustice. We're trying to help people who've been wrongly convicted. We're trying to confront uh, bias and discrimination in the administration of criminal justice. We're trying to end uh, life without parole sentences for children. We're trying to do something about the death penalty. We're trying to reduce the prison population. We're trying to end mass incarceration. I gave her my whole rap, and when I finished, she looked at me and she said, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> she said, that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. <laughs> And with that, he had them. I've simply come to tell you that to keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Thank you very much.
5: When you ended it, did you think you had done a
9: good job? People were very enthusiastic and responded in a really wonderful way. That's what we call a standing ovation. Yes, yes.
5: (laughs) The crowd also offered financial support, which was unprecedented since TED Talks are not about raising money.
9: Some people came up to me and they said, You know, we think that what you're doing is really quite extraordinary. There are a lot of people in this room who want to support you. And I had to leave. You had another engagement in Seattle? I did. And so I said, Well, I can't stay. And much to my amazement, uh, we raised million, a, million, a million dollars. A million dollars? A million dollars. And this is happening without you there. Without me there. Yeah, exactly. And what
5: difference? Did raising a million dollars at an event that you knew nothing about <laughs>
9: make for the cause that you are devoted your life to? Hundreds and hundreds of people were now going to have a chance to get fairer sentences. And it didn't end at the speech because you have this thing called the Internet. Yes, that's exactly right. Even now, uh, I get lots and lots of people who are responding to the TED Talk. You're an inspiring person. Thank you so much.
5: The person who put Brian Stevenson on the stage was Chris Anderson, the man who runs TED. He chooses the speakers, he hosts TED conferences, and he decides which talks
10: go online. There are numerous brilliant people out there, and they've come up with something really important. And so part of the way we see our, our role is to help them make their knowledge accessible. It's a campfire in part, isn't it? It is a campfire. Someone stands up, everyone's eyes are upon them, they tell a story. It's the,
7: conversation
5: the story of TED began with a small conference in the 1980s. It can record one hour. Where bold new ideas were presented about technology, entertainment, and design. TED, for short.
4: Digital likeness, visual technology.
5: We've had so many people. Anderson was a successful magazine publisher. He attended his first TED conference in 1998 and fell in love with what he heard there. And so he bought TED and turned it into a non-profit organization. They're the people who come out the top. In 2006, as something of an experiment, he put a handful of conference
10: talks online. The the reaction was almost immediate. We started to get emails that said things like, I'm sitting at my computer screen crying. An emotional connection. And a a passionate connection. Um, Like these, these talks had got inside people's heads and changed them.
4: So this is a real human brain.
5: One of the earliest TED Talks posted was literally about what was going on inside the head of neurobiologist Jill Bolt Taylor.
4: Then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. And then the next thing my brain says to me is, wow, this is so cool. This is so cool. How many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out?
5: Taylor's talk went viral. We need mathematicians. And soon, Internet users couldn't get enough of TED Talks.
4: Every child.
5: A million views turned into a billion. What? And now, it is an Internet phenomenon. There are all sorts of TED conferences being held around the world daily. I've been locked up now going on 17 years. TED started its own website, TED.com. Want to join me? It has 2,000 talks on just about every subject imaginable.
10: I can tell you with great confidence, I've been to the future. I am 17
4: years old and I am a nuclear physicist.
5: It is something of an intellectual variety show and it is free. Thank you.
4: I was patient
9: zero.
5: It was front page news when Monica Lewinsky recently gave a TED
10: talk on cyberbullying. How does Chris Anderson decide who gets the opportunity? There's no formula or algorithm that says what is right. It's basically, it's a judgment call as to what is interesting and what is interesting now.
9: Countless men around the world.
10: Anderson and his team spend much of their time auditioning.
4: It's become a common complaint. Damn!
5: And looking for the next great story.
4: For the
1: past two years, I've spent thousands of hours working with invasive breast cancer cells in the lab.
5: A great TED talk demands careful planning. Most speakers get months of
10: preparation and coaching. Changing slightly that core question may make the rest of the talk land just a bit more clearly.
5: There are a few rules. There is no selling a product or a book from the stage. No pseudoscience is allowed. And there's an 18-minute time limit.
10: Why 18 minutes? It's, It's a natural human attention span. It's it's an extended coffee break. You can listen to something serious that long without getting bored or exhausted.
5: The goal is to make it to a TED conference and then get your talk posted online. Speakers do not get paid, yet people line up for the chance to make a TED talk. They hope to be the next Amy Cuddy.
4: We're really fascinated with body language.
5: She was a largely unknown psychology professor at Harvard until she took the TED stage in 2012
4: so what is your body language communicating to me what's mine communicating to you
5: Cuddy's talk was about her research into nonverbal communication but it was her personal story that captured the imagination of the audience
4: when i was 19 i was in a really bad car accident i was thrown out of a car and um, i woke up in a head injury rehab ward and i learned that my iq had dropped by two standard deviations
5: she agonized about revealing she had suffered a traumatic brain injury in that car accident.
4: I felt deep ambivalence. And also, what have I done?
5: Ambivalence?
4: Yes. Have I changed my life in a way that, I, that I'll regret? Will people be judging me? Will my colleagues think I'm stupid? <laughs> the head injury story was really, really personal, and it was something that I had mostly kept locked away.
5: This is the most watched ted talk in the last two years
4: that's what chris tells me yes Yes.
5: (laughs) according to chris anderson she's had more than 23 million views it has turned amy cuddy into a star in this new ted created universe she's hot on the lecture circuit and has a new book coming out chris anderson and ted can make someone's career do you like the power that it gives you
10: I don't think in terms of power. It usually. does give I'd... you power. You can sit there and change somebody's life by putting, making them a TED speaker. If you make those choices, then you have power. Well, I would phrase it more as responsibility, um, but, but a joyful one. I do love the fact that someone can give a talk and a few months later can be known by millions of people around the world. <laughs>
5: But for Mason Zayed, the fame she received was not the fame she was looking for.
4: I got 99 problems and palsy is just one.
5: (laughs) She's a comedian. And when she appeared on the TED stage a year and a half ago, she had a punchline.
4: I'm Palestinian, Muslim, I'm female, I'm disabled, and I live in New Jersey.
5: (laughs) And she had a serious point.
4: People with disabilities are the largest minority in the world, and we are the most underrepresented in entertainment.
5: She also had an agenda.
4: I actually thought that once the talk was done, my career would skyrocket. I want to be on TV, and I thought that the TED Talk would open the door for more real-life opportunities with me.
5: And that's what TED did not do.
4: And that's what TED didn't do. But what it did do is it amplified my voice worldwide.
5: With more than six million million views of her talk, which was translated into several languages, she believes she succeeded in a different way.
4: I didn't expect to hear from so many people that felt the talk was about them.
5: How did you change the lives of people who are disabled?
4: I think the change occurs mostly on an individual basis. What I think I've done is help people go out there and say, I have a disability. I shake all the time. It's totally fine. You need to treat me as an equal, even if physically I'm different than you. And I think what I've done is really empower people to be proud of who they are. A lot of people with CP don't walk.
5: Critics of TED, and there are some, believe that this emphasis on the personal stories has turned TED Talks into infotainment, offering easy answers to serious problems. But don't count Brian Stevenson among the skeptics. He traces part of the current public debate about reforming the criminal criminal justice system back to the TED Talk he gave in 2012. And while he is grateful for the money that TED raised, he's even more
9: appreciative of the platform.
5: Did your experience at TED
9: change you in any way? Well, it it did. It made me more hopeful about what can be achieved if you change the narrative. Is there something about TED you want to change? I think the challenge is uh, getting uh, people who consume all of this wonderful stuff that TED provides to not just be consumers, but to take what they learn and know and hear and turn it into some kind of action Uh, that may be a little uncomfortable, that may be a little inconvenient, but will absolutely be transformative uh, to making these great ideas, uh, really ideas that not only spread, but create a greater world.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it
2: at play.it.
7: Every once in a while, we come across someone with an amazing ability a power so unusual, so unexpected, and so fascinating, it becomes a story. That's why we're telling you tonight about a man named Bob Petrella and a college basketball team that gives a whole new meaning to the phrase hoop dreams. Bob Petrella is one of the only people in the world who possessed the extraordinary ability to remember virtually every day of his life. But it turns out there's something else in Bob's memory too, a basketball team whose history he has charted for more than 50 years, called the Holland College Golden Knights. Holland has played in 10 NCAA championships and won five. Never heard of them? Well, there's a reason why you haven't. How old were you when you first created the basketball team? I
1: was 13. January 3, 1964. It was a Friday.
7: Holland coming down, up by only two. You haven't heard of Holland College, because it doesn't actually exist. 28 seconds left in the game. They're an imaginary team. That Bob Petrella made up. And the crowd on its feet now. This is our simulation of one of Holland College's games, with Bob doing the play-by-play. Marcus Hayes did the Ma Harvey. He's been imagining these games for 50 seasons. The Jefferson Clinton. (sighs) And he remembers every one of them. Who were the starting forwards in 1983? The starting forwards in 83 were Otis Pookie and Brad Jasmine. He can
1: describe them. How tall were they? Otis Spooky was 6'6", and uh, Brad Jasmine was undersized at six 6'5", but real bulky. You can He'd almost been... forget... Tell us about the years they made it to the NCAA finals. They went to the final between 73 and 75. They won in 74. They went in 77, 78, 80. They lost.
7: That none of this
8: is real. I mean, this is really unusual. I have never heard of anything like this before. Never. You made that up, though. Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
7: Dr. James McGaw is a leading expert on memory and cognition at the University of California, Irvine.
8: It's not just a series of facts that he recalls, like the memory of the the names of the presidents or the alphabet. Uh, It's a it's a whole story that he has and. The story is rich in detail because you can ask him more and more questions about each of the players.
7: And it's five people every year for 50 years.
8: That's right. Plus the coach and the college president. It, one could not do this without the kind of memory that Bob has.
7: The kind of memory he has is called Sam, Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory. Bob And Bob, along with actress Mary Lou Henner, was one of the first people ever discovered to have it. Okay, we featured them in a story a few years back.
8: A 7.1 earthquake hit the San Francisco-Oakland area. on October 17th, 1989.
7: People with HSAM, and there were still only 56 known cases, remember virtually every day of their lives the way we remember yesterday. What day of the week was August 29th, 2005? Monday. 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 You all know that. Does it ever freak anybody out?
1: People misunderstand it a lot of times. They think it's photographic. They think it's autistic. You know, they call
7: you Rain Man. (laughs) And I'll just go along with us. Yeah, yeah, definitely Friday. The mystery is they're not autistic. They lead normal lives. But Dr. McGaw says the one thing they have in common is obsessiveness. Just look at Mary Lou Henner's closet.
4: I like my shoes a certain way, right foot going this way, left foot going that way. And I have the exact same hangers because then everything slides more easily.
7: And Bob has a few obsessions of his own. If he drops his keys on the ground, he feels compelled to wash them. But McGaw says Bob is the only subject he knows of who has used his extraordinary memory to create a fantasy world.
8: I guess you could say that the fantasy basketball team is another form of obsession. But, you know, we use the word obsession as being, oh, that's terrible, this person is obsessive. Well, that's not all bad. In some sense, it's a good idea to avoid uh, germs. In some sense, it's a good idea to have an imaginary basketball team because it doesn't cost anything and it's a lot of fun.
7: The fun started more than 50 years ago when Bob was in junior high and a devoted fan of his local high school football team in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. They had gone undefeated for two full seasons. So when they finally lost, Bob was devastated. His solution? Create a fictional town with its own team, and run around acting out the games. Once my neighbor was going, what is Bobby Petrella doing?
4: doing? They
7: would just
1: see me out in the backyard, like throwing a football (laughs) and catching it. And then I would narrate the
7: game, and that was Tigertown High School. The next year, Bob gave his imaginary town, Tigertown, an imaginary college, Holland, with a basketball team that's been playing ever since. How does it work? You have a new team every year?
1: Yeah, it's just like college. When they're seniors, they graduate, so we bring in new classes, which is always kind of fun for me because it's kind of like having a new kid or something. He
7: brings them to life as a novelist would, with personalities, backstories, and colorful names like Neil Jagger, Travis Shakespeare, Lamar Mundane, and Slappy Hill, though Slappy wasn't actually
1: his real name. Slappy Hill's real name was Sean. He became sloppy because when he was a little kid, he would he was he would run around the room and he'd go over and he'd slap everybody's thigh
7: and everybody started calling him sloppy. Another favorite, three hundred fifty-pound center Isaac Mosley, who played in the late '80s. Very nice guy, very
1: gregarious, had a real deep booming voice, and his name was Isaac Abraham Mosley, so he's called Big Mo. And he'd walk in and go, "Big Mo is ready for the big show," <laughs> you know. So it echo, "Big Mo is ready for the big show." This is in your head. Yes. His initials were IAM, so whenever someone would ask him something, say, Isaac, how you doing? He'd use IAM, I am, and he'd go, I am delighted. You know? <laughs> I cannot
7: believe how elaborate that story is. Are they all like that? Uh, most of them. I-, I wanted to get this out of Act 5. In real life, Bob is 64, a bachelor, and a freelance TV producer in L.A. But unlike a TV writer or novelist, Bob doesn't write his Holland stories down. With his memory, he doesn't have to. But he does record each player's stats and has for half a century. And he continues developing life stories for each player after they graduate.
6: Bob is covering people from the time they get into this school and a little bit before to when they die.
7: Bobby Simmons, Nancy Uwe, and Mark O'Keefe are among the handful of close friends Bob has let in on his Holland College world.
6: And he'll send me an email and say, Travis Shakespeare died in a one-car accident on an icy road outside of Philadelphia, and it's heartbreaking. You know, it's like, oh no, like, I love this guy, (laughs) and he's gone.
7: Are you caught up with Holland College? Deeply. (laughs) We caught up with them at a sports bar during halftime of a Steelers game, Talking Holland.
4: Any controversy with this season at all? No, not yet. Okay, so. not yet. It's a new coach. It's a new coach. Who's the coach who's the who's
1: the and it was a no-brainer that he was going to take over. Some people thought he should have been hired five years ago because they didn't think that McIntyre was the best. What
8: happened to McIntyre? What's he doing?
1: He had
7: osteoporosis and had to retire.
2: Wow. It's all funny. It's a serious
6: disease.
7: Here's what's weird. The three of you are also into this and accepting the reality of it.
6: I think that goes to what a good storyteller Bob is. And, And he does it without a pen or without a typewriter or without a computer. He does it in his head. It's amazing.
1: Halumi Alobi, and his first two letters of his name was U-H and H-O, so whenever he would block a shot or have a great play, they'd go, "Uh
7: uh-oh. But how do we know, as he spins these tales, that he isn't just making it all up on the spot?
8: You and I could make up names for a basketball team right now, but I doubt that we would remember them six months from now.
7: So Dr. McGaw devised a Holland College memory
8: test for Bob. Of what year is he? He's
7: he's a junior. Hundreds of questions about different players
8: and seasons. What did you think about the 89 team?
7: Well, they started off real slow. They were like 8 and 8. He then invited Bob back six months later and without warning asked the same questions again.
8: What happened in 89? They were struggling. They were a 500 team. They were like 8 and 8. It was seamless and... He just remembers everything about it.
7: Were were there any questions he couldn't answer?
8: No.
1: The main players were uh, Wally White. And How tall was he? He was six foot, but he could dunk. Was he tall? No,
7: he's only six foot, but he could dunk. It's hard to fathom the seemingly limitless storage capacity of Bob's brain. So what is Bob's creative process? Does he just sit down and imagine the games in his head? Not even close. And now for your Holland College Golden
1: Knights. Bob acts them out. At forward, a six foot nine. As
7: he demonstrated senior. for us in this real arena. From um, Detroit, Michigan, Dermar Harvey. Starting with the player introductions.
1: <sighs> oh my God. And the coach of the Holland College Golden Knights in his first season, Bradley Hawthorne. <laughs> Are you being the coach? Yeah. He'll be (laughs) right.
7: And Bradley Hawthorne is not not happy. Well, he shouldn't be happy. That was a bad call on him. In case you're wondering, those last two voices were longtime announcer Bill Tronzo and color commentator Adonis McReynolds. You're both the announcer and the player and the crowd. Right. And you're all the players.
1: Yeah, so I'm playing about 5500 people
7: <laughs> at once. <laughs> but he doesn't actually play them here. Why did it call at the top of the key? Why did it call? he He plays line. them in his living room. In real time, Marcus. this game is against Duke. Bob says he doesn't know who'll win until he plays the game. But either way, he'll remember the outcome forever. Is there any madness here?
8: I don't think so. This is a Walter Mitty type of existence that he has created for himself, except that he knows that he has created it for himself.
7: You know, children fantasize, little kids. You see them talking to themselves the way he does and creating worlds.
8: Yes, he has his imaginary playmates and they are all basketball players. What happens when when they lose? I mean, you must be heartbroken.
1: It It, it depresses the the, the Tigertown population more than me. They don't have as much to live for. They're in a rust belt city. They lost a lot of population. A lot of the factories closed. So obviously that means more to them than it does to me. (laughs) I have to stop myself because I start thinking of what I'm saying.
7: Sometimes when you tell me stories, you smile as if you know
1: that it's funny. Well, well, I know it's funny. (laughs) I smile because I'm telling the
7: story and then I catch myself and go, wait a minute, that's not real. So is Bob like a novelist who creates a whole universe, a Holland College Hogwarts? Well, there are no wizards at Holland. But there is a mascot. Well, it's just uh,
1: some, you know, like Trojan type of person. He's a knight. Do you see it? Uh, I I don't like it.
8: (laughs) But you do see it, though. (laughs) Yeah, I see it. Can't you get that changed?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm Bob Petrella. I live in L.A. I have nothing to do with
7: it. I'm intrigued with how he tricks himself into thinking he's not the god
8: of this place, that he's not in control of the events in his own story. It's a narrative that he created... And once it's created, he, he can't alter it. That's set. And that's it. Holland has beaten Duke. It is so interesting what he can do, because Bob Petrella has a life. He has a job. He gets along well.
1: Uh-oh.
8: And then he has this imaginary basketball team, and he, he carries that all in his head.
1: It's a big part of your life. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it doesn't dominate my life, but it's always there. Could you live without it? I don't think I can anymore. i let there in a sport and steal us the ball. It's not hurting anybody, including me. You know, it's, it's a nice addiction that's safe. And then the crowd goes crazy.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play
2: it at play.it. In the mail this week, comments on the story that we called Rush to Judgment, Armin Kateyan interviewed former Duke lacrosse coach Mike Pressler, who lost his job as a result of a notorious rape scandal involving team members that later proved false. Truly, the Duke administration got it wrong in forcing Mike's sacrificial resignation. But how much of a role did the firestorm led by both local and national media contribute? This was an atrocity right from the beginning. Shame on the Duke administration for not backing up their coach and team. But there was also this about the way our story dealt with the circumstances that led to the false charges. Your treatment of the Duke boys who hired strippers is insane. In what world do we rationalize the activities of these kids? I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Tomorrow, be sure to watch CBS This Morning. And I'll see you on the CBS Evening News.
0: Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool, ...or attending one live... No! You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at Cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the US to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.